Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On New Year's Eve, Cook County Jail Correctional Officers removed a sick man from a tier inside Division 9, one of the jail's maximum security facilities, according to several men detained there. They weren't surprised when quarantined by staff soon after taking the man away. He had been coughing for days. The jail's health care provider had no plan to immediately test the exposed men for COVID-19. It's just terrible, Davis, one of the exposed men said in a phone interview from the jail. This is like being in hell, not jail, hell. Davis, 59, remembers wrestling with mounting fear and uncertainty as days passed and more people on his tier appeared to be sick. At least six detainees said staff never administered tests to people on their tier during their seclusion. After approximately six days, Davis said that they were let off quarantine without a test. Spokespeople for the Cook County Sheriff's Office and Cook County Health, the jail's healthcare provider, said that they could not confirm or deny the detainee's account, but maintained that authorities follow guidance from local and federal health departments for testing and quarantines. Tests may be administered to symptomatic people or those exposed to an infected person, and people held at the jail can request testing or reject it, according to a spokesperson from Cook County Health. However, multiple people detained at Cook County Jail said they didn't know that they could request a test, and others expected to be tested after having close contact with someone suspected of being positive for COVID-19. Some of the people most vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis are those incarcerated in the country's jails, prisons, and detention centers. A comprehensive analysis in The Intercept reveals the climate crisis disproportionately harms incarcerated people. That is especially the case for California, Texas, and Florida, which have the largest incarcerated populations in the nation and face some of the most frequent and extreme impacts of the climate crisis, including floods, wildfires, and heat waves. Most incarcerated people live in spaces that are not air-conditioned. One segregation cell in a Texas state prison regularly has a heat index as as high as 127 degrees Fahrenheit. In California last year, the Dixie Fire cut off the electricity in a state prison in Susanville, leaving the prisoners locked in their dark and smoky cells, frightened of what might happen if the fire reached the prison. Last summer, Tropical Storm Elsa flooded a Florida state prison, trapping the inmates in their cells as water filled with human waste, snakes, and insects reached their knees before they were evacuated. Flood risk data predicted the flooding there and at many other carceral institutions through the U.S. Davidson College senior Brandon Harris sat in a Maryland courtroom Tuesday as a judge decided the fate of a lifelong friend. Sora Sona already served two years of a 14-year sentence for several first-degree burglary convictions. Now the court was reconsidering that stiff judgment, 
thanks to Harris's tireless advocacy on his friend's behalf. Harris is a 22-year-old Davidson College Belk Scholar and two-time president of the school's Student Government Association. He focused on Sona's life for his semester-long independent study project last year, quote, telling stories of the ignored and forgotten. Harris sent personal letters to every one of Sona's 12 victims. He interviewed the prosecutor, police, and Sona's family. And he got the Maryland governor's permission for Sona to appear from Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, when Harris presented his friend's lifelong story to the public on Zoom last April. On Tuesday, a judge in Annapolis, Maryland, lifted the rest of Sona's sentence and released him after Harris, Sona's mom, and by phone from prison, Sona, urged the court to reconsider the sentence. Sona would otherwise have waited until 2034 to be with his family again. Brandon Jackson, a Louisiana man who was in prison for more than 25 years on a non-unanimous jury verdict, was released on parole on Friday. Jackson was the subject of an investigation by the Lens and Al Jazeera's fault lines into the legacy of Louisiana's split jury law, under which people could be convicted of a crime and sentenced to life in prison, with as many as two of 12 jurors voting for acquittal. The law was repealed following a 2018 statewide vote. In 2020, non-unanimous verdicts, which were also allowed in Oregon and Puerto Rico, were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But hundreds of Louisiana prisoners convicted by split juries remain behind bars today. The State Parole Board announced a decision following a brief morning hearing. Jackson's mother, Molly Peoples, who attended the hearing via Zoom and spoke on her son's behalf, threw up her arms in celebration at the news. Quote, I'm blessed, she said in a phone call after the hearing. I'm just so blessed. I don't know how to act. I just want to run down the street and tell the world that my son is free. Jackson, who recently turned 50, was convicted in 1997 of robbing an Applebee's restaurant at gunpoint in Bossier City and stealing $6,000. The jury vote was 10 to 2 to convict. In most states of the country, that would have resulted in a mistrial. In Louisiana, it was a valid conviction. He was initially sentenced to life in prison due to the previous nonviolent drug convictions under the state's habitual offender law, but that was later reduced to 40 years. Non-unanimous verdicts were adopted in the Louisiana State Constitution in an 1898 constitutional convention, near the dawn of the Jim Crow era. The delegates to that convention met with an explicit goal, written in the official journal of the proceedings to, quote, establish the supremacy of the white race. Legal scholars believe that the law was written with the intent of securing convictions for black defendants by nullifying the votes of black jurors, who made up a smaller portion of local jury pools than white jurors. In this week's episode, we air the second part of a conversation between Jacques from Folks Initiatives and Rodney Jones, known as Big R. Big R was a witness to the beating that sparked the 1985 Pendleton Prison Uprising here in Indiana. This conversation is part of a series put on by IDOC Watch and other organizations, including Focus Initiatives. We encourage you to check out their projects, which focus on inside-outside prisoner and reentry support. We'll air more of this conversation next week, but for now, here's Jock and Big R. So these guys who was there, were, were they the primary 
targets when this uprising in 1985 took place, or do you know anything about that? I, I don't. As we found out over the years, when I landed on MRU, I think Lomar might have already been there, already in the scene. When I got there, hey, hey, Lomar, what's happening, man? Hey, what's going on? Whoa, whoa, whoa. But to come to find out, they was targeting a particular prisoner at that particular time. Now, I'm going to elaborate on that. They shook us down three or four times that day. Now, that's a certain sergeant that run that unit, but he wasn't on that day. He had control over his unit. That was his unit. I don't think he, I don't think Sergeant Lane would allow them to come down there that many times. Okay, you come down there. I said, I said, I go to the boy, I tell Loma, I said, man, they didn't shook us down. We ain't got nothing. We already down to underwear and house shoes. You know, especially on this unit here. You ain't, you, you know, it ain't no comfort. You know what I mean? You, you know, it's punishment, really. So, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was thinking about it last night, telling my wife. I said, boy, I couldn't even sleep because it came back to me. 1985, February the 1st, I was there. This third time they came down there in a matter of hours. They ride gear, you know, and this and that. Now they lined up outside Lomar's cell. Now keep in mind, you didn't pass up four or five more cells, but you had Lomar's cell. We in the middle. You got some more cells before you get to us. Right. Why you lined up outside that brother's cell? I say, Lomar. They lined up, man. They got uh look like guns and, and all type of stuff. Lomar said, well, man, look, they didn't, they didn't humiliate us, man, and I'm tired, man. They didn't, you know, what more we got to give. So before the brother can really even turn around, they rushing their own in. They beat that man. That brother was handcuffed laying on the floor, job. I'm right there. I got tears in my eyes because I tell him, look, give me some of that just to take them off of him. I said, let me get some of that. Oh, you, you, y'all gonna get it. You gonna get some, you know, everybody down here. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to tell you what they said now. They said, you, you gonna get some. So I look over there, low blood gushing out of the brother head, cuffed behind his back, man. So a few of us holler up to the front. Now the guys in the front can holler out in population. You know, that side, our side of the unit, you can see the kitchen and maybe another cell. How, hey man, somebody go uh, tell, hey man, they trying to kill us down here. Uh, Trotter, uh, Balagoon, you know what I mean? Just to try to get some, you know, some, some attention on there. They're killing this dude. And Balagoon is what they used to call Cole? Well, at that time, he was John Cole. John Cole. He's, he's now go by Balagoon, too. Balagoon, yeah. You know, and you got to keep in mind, man, Trotter didn't have them about four years. Balagoon had a 20, and he was at, he was at eight on that. You only, only did 10 on the 20 then. He already did eight. You see what I'm saying? So his brothers was close to coming home. Man, close to coming home, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, man, you to, to see what they was doing to Loma over there, man, I tell you, I'm a grown man. I had tears in my eyes. Yeah. I'm witnessing it. Right. I said, hey, man, the dude is already handcuffed. Why y'all hitting him with them sticks like that? And he ain't even moving. I can see the inside his cell. He ain't even moving. I'm thinking they done killed him. Can you imagine getting hit in the head with them sticks? You Blood cut? gushing out, and while you cut behind your back, you can't even get up. You can't defend yourself. I, I tell you what it'd be like. It's probably another Rodney King. 
I don't know if most of y'all seen the Rodney King. It's probably another Rodney King now, now that I think about it. Uh, I want to... Um... I mean, it was devastating. I'm telling you, I'm giving y'all the watered-down version. It was devastating. Right. Uh, you, you know, you speak about the uh, the guards, the um, the group of guards that would line up and rush into the cells to engage and oftentimes brutally with inmates and prisoners. Did those guards who uh, lined up that day, was that the usual group or did they interchange certain guards or was it a different group all the time or how was that type of functioning? Hey, to be totally honest, you can't hardly see their face. You see what I'm saying? They geared up. So you really can't pinpoint who's doing you a disservice. Right. All you know is it don't take that many people to go in there. Oh, you know, a man already cuffed. Come over there. Right. It don't take all that. Were there certain uh, guards who did make themselves known? Make that well, it was certain ones. Sometimes? Even before I got to that unit, it was certain. I remember a particular time, I was headed to the uh, infirmary, which is the hospital. This is for to put me on, you know. And I stepped off in the grass, you know, and I heard, like I said, once again, a whistle. And I forget this boy. I forget this sergeant name. He blew that whistle and blew that whistle. And I thought he was. Whistling for somebody else. So when I got up in the infirmary, he'd come busting up in there. Didn't you hear me uh, blowing that whistle? I said, yeah, I thought you was doing that for somebody else. I, I answered, no, what, what's that for? He said, you stepped in the grass. I said, stepped in the grass? I said, I might have stepped in the grass accidentally. You know, I know they tried to keep the grass and this and that, but I ain't thinking that you're getting ready to get beat up for stepping in the grass. That's the way he came up in the infirmary. You know, then the other police that was already in there, he stood up too. You know what I mean? So I guess support this uh, uh, problem here. I said, man, it ain't no problem here, man. I said, this is all about stepping in the grass. What's the what's really the problem? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's got to be something more serious than this. Right. So anyway, they made it clear to me. Well, when you're walking around, don't step over here. And if you hear me blow the whistle, that means you turn around and, and look and all that. I said, all right, man. I said, okay. You know, because I seen where it was going. Right. I seen where that was finna go. Right. What was that? You say it was a lieutenant. It was a, some type of sergeant. sergeant. I think his name was sergeant. I can't, you know, you got to keep in mind, right. this happened it's X amount of years ago. Definitely. And, you know, and, and, you know. The reason I'm, I'm asking, because it was a group of um, officers at the time. It was discovered later uh, through court proceedings and investigations. Yep that there was a group of officers who called themselves the Sons of Light. Right. Yep. Yep. Did, have you heard anything? I, about? You know, you would hear it, but you didn't know if it was any truth to it until later on in the years. Oh, wow. We was fighting a, a hell of injust inside the belly of the beast. Now, you're supposed to be governing us for, you know, uplift and, you know, better type of situations. But they had their own type of thing going on, man. What type of thing was that that you... Oh, man. That you now, listen, listen, listen. I remember, and God rest his brother's soul, he was on MRU, same year. They beat that man up so bad, the warden wanted to see him, but they had to push him up to the warden's office in a wheelchair. That's how bad they had beat him up in his cell. So one was like, hey, 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 Ice, we called him Ice. Hey, Ice, you all right? 
Tony Williams was his name. And he was, you know, I said, you, you okay? He was kind of moaning. They beat the man up so bad. And then the warden wanted to see him about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. You know, you know when something's wrong. Don't know warden even stay at the prison that late. What are you doing at prison? <laughs> so they wheeled him up in the wheelchair to the warden's office. And then when they brought him back, you know, and ones were just, boy, what we didn't got ourselves into. You know what I mean? You know, it, 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 man, I'm telling you, when I say devastating, bro. So according to what you heard, because I, I have some testimony that was given from a, uh, from a officer, a guard who actually worked for them, you know, at the, uh, at Pendleton. And he gives, you know, his idea and his understanding of who the sons of light were in that prison system. Uh, so as far as anything else, you know, just what type of group they may have been before I get into this. It, it, it came out later that it was white supremacists. White supremacists. Yeah, it came out that they were white supremacists. And, I, and like I said, at that particular time, I didn't know, probably didn't even know a whole lot about white supremacy. You know what I mean? Right. Didn't even know what we were really facing, right. to be totally honest. Right. And then, like I say, I think over the years, and two, the, the brothers went to trial and court, a lot of things start coming out. The officer starts saying, well, I had orders from this one. And no, that one over there told me to go in there, beat him up. You see what I'm saying? That type of stuff. So, man, you know, you know, Jock is funny, man. As I sit here, and like I said, I was on that unit in 1985, February 1st. Had never seen nothing like this before. Devastating to this moment. Couldn't sleep last night, like I said. My wife would tell you, because I stayed up, she stayed up. I said, baby, you know what? We live in this stuff here. And just going back and they saying y'all next, you know what I mean? And don't worry about it. And I think the only thing that really stopped them from coming in on us is over the radio, they heard that it was a riot. You know, it was a up, you know, uprising. Things was getting out of hand. I think it, because they had to rush off the unit to kind of support whatever else was going on, you know. But see, if you think about it, these brothers, your trotters, your balagoons, was trying to shed some light. And it couldn't be from them. It had to be from the world. So the National Guards had to come in. This is the only way you're going to get some attention on this. Because they're going to keep everything in-house. Right. You feel me? They're going to they keep it all in-house. But once you, once you get the uprise and the, the ride, now you're bringing in outside forces. Somebody's going to look into something. Hey, what took place up in here? Right. What's really going on up in here? And through trial, you know, because they moved us everywhere at the certain thing. I, I don't know where I landed. I went this way, another one went that way. But through trial, man, they everything started coming out. Some of it came out here because they spoke to uh, a particular officer. And this is uh, some testimony from his deposition where he was asked, uh, what other beatings have you witnessed at the institution that you talked about earlier? You said earlier you witnessed other beatings. And he responds, ever since I've been there, I've seen about 15 of them. Can you describe them? Uh, the wreck pad incident, mm -hmm. Lincoln Love incident in 1994, earlier in 1983 or 82, before the federal ruling of shackling inmates to the bed, one was shackled and beaten. Yeah. Three different times, inmate Smizer. 
Lil Smiley. I know Smiley. him. You know him? Yeah, I know him. <laughs> I, I was ordered to hold him while the sergeant and lieutenant beat him about the body. Inmate Malone. I know him. You know him? Yep. Paul Malone. Another black inmate. I went in and got him out of his cell several times, brought him down to the MRU section, and on the way down, they bashed his head into the doors and busted the door glass, beat him, and gassed him while he was in the shower. Now, this is another guard telling this, right? This is another guard. Mm. This is his testimony. Right. So, you know, this is one of their own, you know. Yep. Uh, what was the purpose of these beatings was the question. I mean, you stated before that Mr. Love, Lincoln Love, was jerked by the dog leash, which you said earlier, yeah. for making smart remarks. That's what it was about. Lincoln Love didn't want to come out of his cell that day. He had no weapon. And he was told that if he didn't come out, what was going to happen to him? And that's the way, that's the way it goes down. It goes down that way. And they didn't even give a man a chance to really, they, they, they wanted to come in on him. I'm telling you what I've seen. Right. Would it be fair to categorize the beatings that you've seen basically for refusal to obey an order? And he responds, every beating that I've seen on any inmate in there has been totally uncalled for. There's never been a weapon. Any ones that I've been in there, there's been only one time I've got a commendation for on my packet where an inmate had a weapon. So in all those altercations, 220 double digits, you know, they're saying, he's saying that there was only one time where he truly felt like it was justified, you know, where, where an offender actually had something that could be used to cause damage or harm, you know. So even in his own words, you know, the, a part of the administration, he's saying that this was only one time where it seemed uh, reasonable to use force. He says, uh, but that's the only time that an inmate's actually been hurt while I was present that I've participated in. The rest were totally uncalled for. Of the 15 that you've seen, how many would you say were directed towards black inmates? His answer, everyone except one. You know? So that just speaks upon the culture a little bit, uh, especially at this time. Now, you know, when I got incarcerated and when I went through the system, I saw a lot of that stuff too. You know, I saw a lot of people mistreated, handled desperately badly. And it, and it, and it's such a, a, a hurting feeling Man. because you do, uh, gain friendships and bonds with, with guys, you know, cause a lot of people in prison are good people. I mean, it might sound crazy. I know you've been led to believe other things, but that's the truth. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, I was one of them. You know? I was one of them. I would try to help anybody in here, Yeah. you know. But to see somebody that is a friend of yours, somebody that you've created a bond with, and to see them treated like that, yeah. and then it readily expressed to you that if you do anything, if you try to even give him a cup of water, it's a, it's a, yeah. then it's about to be your problem. It's consequences, you know. Even if you try to help him, you know, this could fall back drastically right in your lap, you know. Um, and I think that officer did a good a good point in, in expressing that. But he also talks about um, the sons of light, 
I wanted to say. Hey, can y'all imagine though, 1985, witnessing somebody that you didn't build a bond with? Just, 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 just think about it. And to yeah. see blood gushing out his head, he cuffed behind his back. And you right there looking at, you right across from him. I'm telling you, I had tears in my eyes. Yes, yes sir. You know? Uh, and it, it, you know, go ahead, go ahead, bro. And so now we're getting into the Sons of Light briefly. It says, as, as the officers asked the question, are you aware of any white racially motivated groups that any of the guards belong to? Answer, the Sons of Light, right off his tongue. And he says, uh, uh, and what do you know about them? It's a group of lieutenants, captains, sergeants that belong to this, that use the KKK literature and the same types of rituals. They are a splinter group. They're not affiliated. They don't pay the dues. It's developed solely for the institution. So it was a group, uh, as it says, racially motivated group within the prison system who made that doctrine of the KKK, you know, to oppress mm -hmm. by force, violence and fear, mm -hmm. you know, so they chose to adopt that as their culture within with, when it came to engaging with inmates, yeah. mostly who are inmates of color, minorities, you know, black, Latino. And he continues, the question was, what's their purpose? Well, and excuse the term, but it's here. Well, they hate, they hate, and they hate Catholics. That's what was explained to me. Who explained it to you? Well, you have Lieutenant Burke, which was the reverend. He recruits the, excuse me, he's a reverend? Imagine. <laughs> the reverend is, he'll talk to you about joining this group, you know, this penitentiary clan. So he's the reverend of the Sons of Light, correct? He's not the reformatory reverend. No, he's not. Okay, go ahead. Then you have somebody like Captain Sands. Our children used to be babysat by him and play with his clan robe. Okay. He, uh, he carries a card. He's involved in it. That's the captain, which is over all the captains of the institution. So not only does he have a position of authority, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful position. He's over all other captains. Lead captain, so lead captain. And then you have now Captain Jackson, which is involved in the Boga film, and which Captain Sands took out of there to take to the group. We're trying to obtain a copy of that to get to the press. The Boga film you're referring to is the film that was on the news. Yes, it's another beating. The film that was on the news of the beating of another inmate. Yes, it shows an inmate in there cursing and calling people mothers and everything else, refusing to come out of his cell. And they took this film to show how they can just go in and obtain an inmate that is nude in his cell and remove him by shooting him with gas and then go in and club him. So this was the common procedure. Like he said, open the Almost gate. The natural order thing. Shoot the gas in there, yep. you know, whatever it is get them discombobulated, if yeah, you will. Yeah. And then while they're trying to get their bearings, rush in beat and beat them. So that was common procedure. Yeah, natural right. order thing. Natural order thing.
This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.